0: Hey everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Easy Conversations podcast, a podcast about having easy conversations. I'm your host, Furkan Dania. In this week's episode, I'm excited to welcome Allie Bird. In this episode, Allie and I discussed her new book, Grief Ally, which was released recently. Allie shares why she was motivated to write this book and believes that allies during grief are crucial. Ali and I discuss a couple of chapters in her book and highlight key things to be mindful of when supporting people experiencing grief. Since her husband's untimely death, Ali has poured her heart into helping those who feel helpless during an unexpected crisis. Her extensive study of grief, psychology, and culture, combined with her devastating first-hand knowledge, led her to create a roadmap for the courageous dedicated individuals willing to show up for the people they love with unconditional love, empowerment, and reverence. A speaker and workshop leader, Ali shows a clear path to those who dare to take on the vital role of being a grief ally. Recognizing that there must be a change in how our culture handles grief, Ali is committed to building a support and educational network for those who have experienced an earth-shattering loss and the people who are often overlooked. The Griever's Loved Ones and Trusted Support System. Aiding in her mission, Ali is pursuing a graduate degree in counseling psychology and a career in grief therapy. Ali is a coach and author with a BA from Carleton University and MSc in social planning from the University of Toronto. She's also Canadian counseling and psychotherapy association member and the Bereavement Ontario Network. Keeping her life in balance, Ali is passionate about taking long walks with her dog reading art, and singing at the top of her lungs whenever possible. You can find Ali at alliebird.com or find her on social media at the Allie Bird. And please leave a review at the end of this episode. All right, Allie, welcome to the Easy Conversations podcast. Thank you for joining me and thank you for reaching out. I really appreciate it and i'm really excited about the conversation today not it's not an easy one to to discuss and not a lot of people like to think about it but i think it's part of the human experience and something we should become i don't know for me i think getting to a certain age it's something i, I think about more not from a a dark perspective but more of a realistic perspective but uh before we we start our conversation today, I want to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself and and let the listeners know uh, who you are and what it is that you do.
1: Yeah, thanks for I so my name is Allie. Um, I am a coach with a community development background. Um, I am also a therapist in training. Um, but most recently in 2019, um, I became a widow. Uh, at 30, my husband died completely unexpectedly, and I was thrown into the world of grief uh, without any skills or tools or real experience um, to know what it li- li- is like to live with a, a devastating, life changing loss. Um, so from there, I I have really dove deeply into grief psychology, doing my own work um, and. What I have done in that process is wrote a book called Mm -hmm. Grief Ally, helping people you love cope with death, loss and grief. And it's really my mission to teach people kind of basic grief literacy so that we can all show up better for each other um, when loss and change does occur.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and thank you for sharing part of your manuscript with me and, and thank you for sharing that. Um, I guess the first question that came to my mind when I was preparing for this episode was, why was it important for you to write a book to to help others understand how they can, you know, work with their loved ones when they're dealing with grief? When? So I guess there's two parts to that question. Why write the book? And then why was it important to you while you were, <clears throat> excuse me, dealing with your own grief?
1: Yeah. So I guess the the first place to start in answering that question is that there are a multitude of ways that anyone processes grief, mm-hmm. um, and there there's an uh, some authors Doka and Martin have this book called Grieving Beyond Gender. So the way we grieve is actually exists on a bit of a continuum. At one end are instrumental grievers, and these are the people who are very feelings forward folks. Mm-hmm. They do well in support groups. They share spontaneous emotion. And then on the other end of that spectrum or on that continuum is an instrumental griever who where grief is much more of a cognitive process and they're much more likely to express their grief as more problems to solve than Mm -hmm. an emotional experience. So I certainly fall on the more cognitive instrumental side uh, of that continuum, although most people exist somewhere like in the middle and do a balance of the two. So for me, my own grief process has been a very cognitive, scientific, um, searching for information and answers type process. And the way that I've been able to kind of keep, keep the uh, focus on that was to focus on a project. Um, mm-hmm. And early on, it became apparent that a real problem existed in terms of there not being a Single resource for folks who want to show up for someone they love who has suffered a life changing loss. Mm. There are so many tools for the bereaved themselves who are, you know, right at the epicenter of the earthquake that has shaken their lives. Um, But honestly, like when something really bad happens, you don't have the brain capacity to, you know, learn new things and take on new information and try and solve that problem. But yet there are all these people in the wings saying, what do I do? How do I help? Um, Mm -hmm. So I wanted to give those folks a resource that they could go to. They didn't have to mine the Internet for answers. It's like here is the starting place for you to give you more agency, more confidence to show up and give the person that you love and care for what they need.
0: Um, Right
1: and to be very honest like i didn't know that it was going to be a book early on um yeah. i just was like this is a problem that i feel strongly about solving and and a book is what it it turned into um mm-hmm. it was never my intention to you know have a have a dead husband and then <laughs> put it all into a book
0: right right yeah and, and when you talk about the intuitive grievers and the instrumental grievers on the two sides do you feel like as you go through the grieving process you can kind of move from one end of the continuum to the other depending on how you're processing the grief um cuz when i was kind of understanding that to me it was like oh yeah i could see myself falling on both depending on any given day or even how i'm evolving through the process
1: Absolutely i think i think we all have a blend of both um within us. And it depends on a, a number of factors how how we are expressing um our grief data. I think a lot of it too comes from, you know, who we are with and what is our environment safe enough um to, you know, really get down to like the deep, the deep
0: right. feelings
1: um yeah. that that grief comes with. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly. And I don't, it's not a linear process either by any means. One day you could be more instrumental and cognitive and the next day it's just your, it's, it's all emotion.
0: <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and, and I did notice that because you did debunk the grief process, the five-step process that people talk about. And it's like, same with healing, right? When you see a process, quote unquote, you almost experience it as a linear thing. But yeah. as we know, healing or grief is not linear. You you're, you may be angry one day and, and then you may feel depressed another day and you might accept it, but then you might fall back to that anger um, when you start thinking about things or, or certain things come up. And so why was it important for you to debunk that process? And what was your experience like as you were going through your own process?
1: Yeah, um, I think it's really important to really debunk the the Kubler Ross five stages of grief because we do have this desire to put hard things into boxes to be able to check them off and then say, okay, now it's going to be done.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: hard things in life don't work like that. Um, right. The, the older you get, the the more you learn that lesson. Unfortunately, um, and I think it's it's really important for people to understand that you know, if their, their grief is not a linear model of healing, that there isn't anything wrong. Yeah. Um, one thing that I've, I feel really um, is really important for people to know is that grief lasts forever. And to mm-hmm. take a few steps back and really explain like what grief is grief comes from the fact that like we as humans attach to things, ideas, right. people, and we have been doing that since we began. It's how our species has survived. So mm-hmm. the fact that we attach is human and because we attach, therefore grief is also human because grief is that energy that is created within us when those attachments change, shift, right. transform. And we can be attached to you know simple things like ideas, goals, dreams, um, things, but then also people. And people are probably the hardest and the biggest thing that we can be attached to. Um, yeah. because they operate independently of us, right? Um, mm-hmm. so that that change in attachment is really what grief is. It's that like internal energy that's created when that attachment shifts and changes and transforms, and from their emotions come from it. But the thing is is that there's also is going to be something new that reminds you of that person, which then kind of brings that attachment back, brings those right. thoughts back. And so you're always going to feel something. And mm-hmm. the only thing that would change that grief is to have the thing back that was taken away or that you lost or whatever. So grief is always going to be there. So coming back to that five-stage model, it's important to know that there can't be five stages and then it be fixed because the only thing that would fix this grief would be to have whenever you lost back. And that's right. impossible. Yeah. So I think it's really important for people to know that even even if you go through the five stages, even if you feel every emotion on the feeling wheel that you're not doing grief wrong, it's just the nature of it is that you will always feel something. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not always bad. Sometimes, you know, there are emotions of like of of gratitude of relief um, of just pure joy um, in remembering something and it all that is okay. Um, Mm -hmm. I have a, a, My, my therapist used the quote once, you know, if you're, you're going on a hike or something and you walk through a marsh and then you, you know, climb a hill and then you walk through another marsh, it doesn't mean you're not getting, moving any more forward. It's just, you, you've come across another marsh.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm Yeah. Yeah. And, and the idea of attachment is interesting. And, and the reason why at the beginning of the episode, I said, it's, it's an interesting topic because at least for me, uh, Lately, as part of my journey, a few months ago, I started contemplating the whole notion of death and what that means. And it was uncomfortable, as you can imagine, because we have attachment to various things, right? I have attachment to these uh, things I want to achieve or accomplish in my life. Uh, I have attachment to family members, to my son. So it's like, okay, well, what does what does that mean if I were to die? Right. And, And I think it's it's often easier to kind of think about yourself going through that process, but not being on the other end of it. Right. If you were to lose a family member. So it was very interesting. And I think part of the reason people are very uncomfortable with the notion of death or grief is because of the, um, to your point, the attachment, but also it reminds us of our own mortality and, um, yeah, it, it, it I think that's where a lot of people struggle. Uh and and then around the same time I was contemplating all that, uh my my grandma passed away and I mean she lived a good life, a full life, and rather than grieving it, I almost in my head celebrated it because uh I was able to FaceTime her. Um, fortunately, and and I could see she was ready for that next stage. And that brought me peace. And I think it was kind of interesting to go through that whole experience around the same time. But I guess it could be harder when when it's sudden and not expected. So uh, what yeah, I'm trying to I, it's like your experience with all of that, right?
1: Yeah, it's. um, I'll put the, like the asterisk in front of it is that it's 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 all different
0: mm-hmm. and
1: it is all relative to your own experience how difficult is yeah yeah um someone who loses someone they love unexpectedly and suddenly it's hard but you know someone who has to watch their their loved one you know die from a terminal illness or something that takes their faculties away is is also hard and often you know we have i've had conversations with people and we would love to switch um and i think so yeah it's just it's it's all hard for sure um but coming back to you know these 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 thoughts that you've had yourself like thinking about like death and your own death i think the thing that culturally we've done a really great job of engineering the discomfort out of our lives so we don't end up going through you know these severing of attachments until later in life when we've already had these kind of fundamental assumptions kind of built into our our brains and bodies without really having to think about them they're like unconscious assumptions that we have about how the world works when people die if i do the right things i will get what i want and death kind of calls all that into question and Mm -hmm. you know there are things you have to grapple with when death comes into your life, no matter right. what age you are. Um, and that in itself is is part of the process, certainly. Yeah. Um, for me, you know, I, I, I had the belief that people died when they were old. That yeah. was the, the, the model that, that I had in my brain. And I thought that, you know, if I was a good person and I did the right things, That that I would get to die when I was old, too. And that's how everybody operated. Um, Unfortunately, you know, I've had to had to grapple with that. And it's just like, you know, bad things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. (laughs) Um, And it's much more chaotic and um, unintentional than. I expected. uh, Right. uh, To be for sure. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah,
1: absolutely.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And I think it's it just, I think taking a step back for me when I reflect on all of that is just recognizing that we're not in control, right? Yeah. And and I think a lot of these experiences are a reminder of that, and and part of the reason why it, it is uncomfortable is that realization, right? So yes. So yeah. So I guess shifting. A little bit here to the whole notion of the book and, and mm-hmm. the underlying message there is really you want to equip people to be grief allies, right? And, yes. and if they know someone in their life that's experiencing grief, you're helping them with a guide in terms of understanding how they can show up. Now, that in itself is a difficult process. As you mentioned in the book, it can be exhaustive. But what are some key things you want people to understand when they're being that person, being that ally for, for someone else?
1: Yeah, I think my the greatest lesson that I can give anyone is that, you know, you're going to want to try and fix it. If you're showing up for someone that that you love and care for dearly, you're going to want to fix it and you can't and and that's probably the most uncomfortable part. You want to be a superhero, you want to bust down the door, you want to get the bad guy and get this over with. You can't do that. But what you can do is that you can make their life more comfortable and easier. Like mm-hmm. that is, and also in doing that you don't have to do everything. Um I think there's this for some reason culturally it's like, "Oh, you show up, you bring food." You bring flowers, a card, and a joke, and then it's like check, check, check. Go to the funeral, and then okay, now now it's done. And the reality of grief is that, as we've talked about, you know, it lasts forever. That like long that after the funeral part, like there's no guidance um, at that point. So I tell people, do what you can to make people's lives comfortable and more easy, and to within that use the strengths that you have if you are not an amazing cook or you don't want to do the food thing that is okay i have a friend who not inclined to spend any time in the kitchen and that's totally fine she is an amazing note taker she is incredible at like research and finding answers so that's like where where she has helped me the most in moments where i have this meeting my brain is not working like will you sit in and take notes for me she's like absolutely I will be there. I will do that for you. Um, That's that. I think that's the most important thing people people can focus on and where they where they have the most agency for sure.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think going back to the the idea of attachment, even as an ally, it's important to recognize that we're not attached to any one outcome or scenario, because. As we've discussed so far that the process is not linear right and as an ally if we're attached we can it can also get kind of frustrating that oh why is this progress not happening and what am i doing wrong and why is it not happening the way it should um so what are some things that you know people need to keep in mind when it comes to that as well
1: that's a great that's a great observation and a and a great question um i think The best thing that people can do is to have their own self-care process if they are showing up for someone that um, they love. Uh, And that means, you know, being self-aware enough to recognize that, like, I I am really invested in this and I'm not taking care of myself because I'm taking too much care of you. (laughs) That's not probably a proper grammar, but... Um, but to take that, to have that self-awareness that like this is going to be a very, very long process mm-hmm. and to be there in the moment with your person through every up and down is not realistic. Like you will burn yourself out that way. Like you have to think about being on an airplane. You put your own oxygen mask on first. And right. I think keeping the mindset that this is Something that will last forever, grief lasts forever. And sure, your person will eventually, you know, figure out how to, you know, use the volume dial on, Mm -hmm. you know, managing whatever energy is coming from that change in attachment for them. But for yourself, you really need to keep an eye on what's going on internally for you. Because witnessing someone else's grief can also be very distressing for yourself. Like if you have Absolutely. had loss in your in your past and it didn't get the attention that it probably deserved, then it could be a lot of stuff could be coming up for you, too. Um, mm-hmm. So just being aware of yourself first and right. then keeping your your attention on the person that you love second. I think. Yeah. That's an lesson.
0: For sure. For sure. And I think part of it is something we also learn as therapists in school or, or something that we're told to keep in mind, even in our personal development as therapists, is the whole notion of compassion fatigue. So it's kind of the same idea that, you know, you're, you're uh, kind of on the receiving end of working with someone or, or helping someone. And it's easy to take on what they're going through their stress their emotions their grief and part of the the whole idea of compassion fatigue is is everything you highlighted being aware of it so then it doesn't lead to burnout and doing the things uh you can do for your own mental health and well-being and there's various strategies you can you can deploy but yeah, it's it's first of all, being aware of that, because uh, if you burn out or if you're experiencing compassion fatigue as a grief ally, then you're probably not in a good spot to be showing up for for your person. Right.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And that I think. If you've never been in a grief ally situation before, it's easy to really get caught up in the moment in that kind of superhero mode where I want to fix this, I want to change everything, Um so with that, I think there is an element of, of making mistakes and learning from those mistakes within the being a grief ally process as well. And I think that's really important to note that if you come out too strong and then have to dial it back, like that is OK, too.
0: Mm-hmm, yeah. um,
1: and I think within the grief ally process, you have to have a lot of you have to have a lot of compassion for your person, but you also have to have a lot of self-compassion for those mistakes mm-hmm. that you're going to make make. And it's really important to have a recovery process. Um, for when those mistakes do happen, because they will happen. If you are close enough to your person, if you are showing up for them in the way that they need you to, you are going to make mistakes. There is nothing you can do about that. Um, But to keep in mind that it's okay if you make mistakes and you can recover from them. And in fact, if they're with this person that you care about, your relationship will actually get stronger if you can recover from them in a meaningful way.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it would be hard if you're a perfectionist and trying to be a grief ally, right? Um, When you talk about the fix it Mm -hmm. kind of scenario, that resonates for me because I think I've I've talked about this on the podcast too. As, As men, our tendency is typically to fix things. And it's been important for me to highlight to other people, but also to myself to often take a step back. And even if it's not grief related, but if someone is struggling with something, whether it's a family member or a friend, to take a step back and and always not focus on the fixing because whatever they're experiencing can be uncomfortable for me too, but it's trying to understand what they need in that moment, right? And and as you've highlighted in your book too, that often people just need someone to listen, right? They just want to be heard and they don't want a, a solution. They just want to be able to Throw all the messy emotions and the feelings out, uh, put it on the table, and just have someone there to listen. Um, and that's, I think, probably an important thing to to be mindful of as as a grief ally as well.
1: Absolutely. And there's there's a whole chapter of that um, in the book about how to be an active listener for something for someone. And sure. I think that there's three like really key points to active listening that are not active listening. And I think there's a bit of a misconception there. The first one is when you're listening that you don't say me too. Yeah. All you need to do is just reflect what that person is saying. And, you know, we learn this as aspiring therapists, but just repeating back language that that right. person is using can be so much more meaningful than hearing them say like, oh, me too. That's actually like grief hijacked.
0: Yeah. Um, and <laughs> And often when the person says me too, it's well, intentioned because of course the 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 mindset there's oh if I make this person feel like they're not alone then they'll feel better but why is it problematic in that context
1: in when your life changes so significantly there are people certainly who search for community
0: Mm -hmm. but there are
1: also people who just need that that reality witnessed and reflected yeah just someone to say i know how bad this is for you i recognize that this is life-changing for you and kind of when you say me too if people are not searching for community at that point it's a bit of like problem solving without permission which is another thing that we shouldn't do if when Mm -hmm. we are active listening and trying to support someone Um, if they ask because you know they know your story or something like oh did you feel this way certainly that is an opportunity for you to enter the conversation and share your experience but mm-hmm. if they if you're sharing without permission without their consent then you're you're problem solving for them when they haven't asked for it which can right. actually take a lot of agency away from that individual Maybe. as well as kind of um Take away the significance of their loss for them. It's a bit disenfranchising when what they really need to hear is that this is this is really bad or I I can see why you feel that way.
0: Yeah. 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 And I think uh, part of it is also it's 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 a myth around empathy. Right. People I'm able to relate to this person. Then I'm demonstrating empathy. But to your point, it's doing the opposite. Um, and, And I think. At that point, when someone's sharing something, they don't really want to know if the other person's experienced it. I think it's just knowing that someone's there in that hole with them. We're yes. Right? So, so yeah, that's. I think that's a great point. What are the other key things to active listening?
1: Um, so I've mentioned reflecting on individuals, um, the language that they're using. So if I say like, Today, today feels horrible. This happened, this happened. Um, and I just I feel like garbage. And, and yeah. you can say, I'm really sorry that you feel like garbage today. Mm-hmm. Like and that can be enough. There's mm-hmm. also immediacy behaviors that you can use. You wanna be able to kind of follow the conversation of someone is having like a stream of consciousness, just continue to let them know you're listening. So mm-hmm. it's- yeah okay. do you want to tell me more? How did that make you feel? Like just simple little things to keep them sharing if that yeah. if it feels as though they really need to get something on their chest, and often that's really what it is. They just need an outlet to be reflected, particularly when it comes to partner loss. Partner right. loss is such a uh, a tangible um intimate thing where you often do have a mirror walking around um yeah. reflecting. What is happening in your life? Someone to share that with, and when that disappears, you lose your mirror. So finding people who will be that mirror for you again is is can be very valuable. Um, another thing to think about is that we often have this desire, I think, to be present, like physically present with the person that we want to support. We want to go over to their house, you know, we want to sit with them on their couch. Um, okay. My reality was that my my loss, my my. Deepest grief really happened during COVID, um, which is like a whole other conversation that we could have. But that meant that a lot of the the, the active listening that I needed had to happen on the phone or on Facetime. Yep. Um, and there was a study done that actually showed immediacy behaviors, the verbal cues um, that come, because you also yep. can do like just reflection and making sure that you're, you know, paying giving all your attention to the person when they need to hear you. But those verbal immediacy behaviors are actually much more effective than the visual ones. Um, So that means that if you're talking to someone on the phone, doing that, "Mm -hmm, okay, yeah, I know, those are wildly more effective than being sitting with someone on their couch and asking them to share their feelings. Right. Um, Which makes actually talking on the phone a very, very useful tool. Um, As well as, you know, thinking about, neurodivergency and how our brains work some people don't want eye contact some people don't want to be touched some people like I actually I I have one person that I talk to on FaceTime otherwise like I really don't like FaceTime because it's like asking me to put all my attention in one place and I would rather like let my eyes wander because I will give you a much better answer um, to something it's also very hard for me as a more instrumental griever to, to share emotion Um, In a very face to face way. But if I am listening to someone on the phone, like there is that space for me to be like, okay, I am here, they are there, and now I can express myself. um,
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. And, and kind of maybe building on that in terms of your own experience of of COVID and not having perhaps people be able to come over or, you know, meet at a coffee shop or whatever. That may look like. Do you feel like your experience would have been different had you not gone through it during COVID?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. In what way?
1: Um many, many ways. Um, there was certainly a uh My my preference for physical physical presence of of individuals would be to like just have them around. Yeah. Um. I would much prefer to go to someone's house and just kind of like exist on their couch. Yeah. And have them do life around me, and that that would have been very comforting to me to just mm-hmm. not be alone. Um, right. And I think that the the caliber of loneliness that I experienced in COVID is immeasurable in comparison to those that didn't have to uh, isolate in their experience. And the trouble is, is that we'll never really be able to compare those things. It just, to to me, it feels as though like that would have been the dream.
0: Right, right. To be able to do that. Yeah. So I guess there's times where you, you were just wishing that you could be around people just for that presence and not necessarily for someone to kind of help you through the grief or listen to you. You just needed that physical presence that would have offered you more than enough support. And unfortunately, you weren't able to get that because of the lockdowns and, and all the the isolation protocols.
1: Exactly. Okay. No,
0: I, yeah. I think
1: there was also like we could talk about like a uh a lack of, um, physical touch. So, and I will also like put the, put the asterisks here that I, so I live on Vancouver Island, the majority of, you know, my, my best friends and family live in Ontario. My yeah. partner and I, um, moved out to the Island together. So, Yes, I have I have friends here, but my my best friends, the people who, you know, flew in for the yeah. funeral and whatnot, like had to go home eventually. And I had intentions of visiting them. But, you know, travel became quite difficult and for um, sure. that sort of thing. So there is like an element of like physical touch that I was like devoid of for months. Um, yeah. And whether you are a person who appreciates physical touch or not, I think you know, there are various degrees of that but just the, the opportunity to, you know, hug someone and to know that, you know, all their love is in that hug. I, d- I didn't, I did So when things started to like, finally like open up, I remember like, you know, going, going for a massage and just that, like, and that this also adds to, you know, like, intimate partner loss as well. Yeah. Um, that, you know, someone would touch me and that first touch would be like a shudder, because mm-hmm. I, I had not been touched. And I think that You know, there is a lot of um, co-regulation that happens. Um, We like go down like a nervous system uh, route uh, conversation, but that didn't exist. And I had to do a lot of work, a very lot of challenging work to try and figure out how I was going to self-regulate in this very dysregulated state while the world was completely dysregulated as well. (laughs) Um, I'm not saying that COVID was easy for anyone, but, you know, those were the challenges that that I have endured.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. And I think that's an important thing to note cuz not something I've given much thought to, but you know, depending on the type of grief and loss, there is that physical aspect of it too, right? That we are either attached to or we're grieving. And in your case, it was having that comfort of of even just getting a, a hug, which you <laughs> couldn't get easily and and I guess it probably even just going through or being in the midst of COVID it probably made some of your own people that would have been able to support you. They were probably also going through their own challenges and and probably created a uh, a whole different process for you, which probably would haven't existed without the pandemic, right? One hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You did mention the whole notion of. Community and you know our immediate family and friends perhaps may not be well equipped to offer this type of support because they may not understand what the individual's going through or what they need, but then, in your case, you said you were able to find a community that was able to understand that. What was that like, and what can you offer to people that perhaps are going through their own grief and are seeking that community?
1: Yeah. um, Yeah, this is this is a great story and actually part of like why I wrote the book, wrote the book, because so early on in my grief, um, I got set up with a therapist. We had one chat and their advice was go find community. Mm -hmm. Um, And being a 30 year old widow, that that was actually very, very difficult to find. So joining Facebook groups, there was I listened a lot and I was having a really hard time um, being able to empathize with people's experience because they were talking about being forgotten and abandoned and misunderstood. And my my best friends and family didn't do that. I, I felt very, very seen and, and witnessed and supported um, despite the distance. Um, they were very, very good at that. Um, which is why I wrote the book because I was like, I don't know where you guys are getting your answers. And they didn't either. This is just like, Mm -hmm. I have really emotionally intelligent group of people that I have built around me, you know, over time. Mm -hmm. So I said, let's take these lessons and put them into a book so that other people have, you know, some guidance in this area. Um, So I guess my first suggestion would be if someone isn't feeling supported in their, their own experience of grief, like, get grief allied for your, yeah. for your people. Um, I think also too, it's important to remember that, you know, a loss, a, a death, especially, um, affects a number of people in different ways. So there is, you know, this, not every, no everyone's support. There will be differences in everyone's support work.
0: Right. So yeah.
1: for me, my, my partner was not best friends with all of my best friends. So they right. had, you know, the the distance to be able to show up for me. Whereas, you know, immediate family members have their own grief. They need their own allies. And quite often there's this this idea that, you know, family needs to show up for each other, you know, right after a loss and in some cases that's not actually possible. Like if we yeah. are going through it, going through the the deepest, darkest, most complex human em- emotions that, that we can experience, then, you know, the, the, the mother of a son who has died and you love that son, you two are not going to be each other's support. Like, it's not, it would be a lovely idea, but that, that grief is too intense for those two individuals. So Mm -hmm. they need their own support networks. But in terms of finding community, I mean, it's my mission that people would be able to Have their own communities to build the skills that they don't have to go find others who have experienced the kind of loss that they do but i know that some people want to do that and unfortunately like there's no real roadmap for that it's a bit of trial and error um unfortunately and to be honest like as uh, someone who was widowed at 30 like i i am statistically insignificant so i found Mm it very challenging to find people who had experienced a loss like mine, but that I was also like like, in like similarness to, (laughs) Um, uh, you know, there's so much discrepancy among individuals that trying to find someone that has experienced what you have experienced and is also likely like you is tough. Right. Uh, The older you get, you know, the unfortunate thing is that more people die and therefore there are more people who have lived experience like you do. But the younger you are, the more challenging that is.
0: Yeah, right. I mean, yeah, and and kind of reflecting on that, I guess with grief, there's no like age to it either, right? So I think it's something to be mindful of from that perspective. But one of the things that jumped out in terms of family, it's so important to mention that and to your point, You know, we were when I was visiting family over the holidays, we were taught we experienced uh, close family members dying in the last year. um, Mm -hmm. And we were talking about it and trying to figure out, well, what's the best way to respond? Right. Like if like we lost our aunt and then we lost her grandma, I was like, well, what are we supposed to say to our cousins and to our uncles and stuff? And my brother was like, you know, like, it's tough for me to call people and be like, I'm sorry for your loss because I'm also grieving. I'm I also lost someone and I think we get so caught up in what's the right thing to say and do and to your point earlier we're not mindful of giving ourselves that compassion and also permission to feel that grief uh, because we're we're focused on on what the grief is feeling like other people
1: Yeah so, exactly I think a lot of a lot of And what we do in in our culture is we focus on other people, less right. on ourselves. So the model that we have for grief is this like kind of outward, like this outpouring of grief support that is yeah. actually like not entirely helpful. It's the flowers, the go to the funeral, the send the card, the like the tell the joke to try and cheer yep. someone up a bit. Right. We have far less far fewer role models of what the like internal grief experience looks like. Mm -hmm. Um, So we don't give ourselves that permission. So that is another thing that's like, just give yourself as much permission as you need to feel what comes up um, when you do experience, you know, a death close to you. But then also that like, like, and this isn't a secret, there is no right thing to say. Right. It's far more nuanced than that um there are like a few pointers about like what not to say yeah, um <laughs> uh, yeah. there's a chapter about that in the book um but it is very nuanced and I think a lot of it is like just just be honest with yourself and then be honest with the person that that you are trying to support
0: yeah yeah absolutely and I think part of it is we we get really uncomfortable, as we've talked about uh, throughout the episode here, we get uncomfortable with the whole concept of grief and because it's not something we try to think about, we it's something we avoid generally. So when something like that happens, it's so much easier to focus on other people and what they're going through rather than giving ourselves that permission and trying to experience it for ourselves and yeah i don't know what the right answer is and like you said there's no right answer i think it's just uh something you have to experience fully and uh yeah yeah
1: Yeah. and it goes back to you know what i said at the beginning about making mistakes like you're going to make mistakes chances are yeah you're you're probably gonna you know fumble over your words at some point you're gonna say something that you regret but like if you love someone enough like apologize apologize and say i'm sorry i said that like that was probably the wrong thing to say at that point um i wish i had said this yeah or i wish i had waited you know three days before i reached out because at that point like i was still doing a lot of processing yeah um I think we get we get caught up in in the timelines. we get caught up in trying i think I think it really it comes down to like fixing other people and it it's about fixing our own discomfort as well, um mm-hmm. you know, part of that like, oh, I'm feeling so uncomfortable if I just say something, then this discomfort will go away. yeah, um and you know this is it's a it's a it's a whole world um that we have to work on about just right. em- embracing discomfort. Um, yeah. And uh, that's, that's really the crux of it, I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it shows your human side too, right? Because we don't have all the answers as we've talked about. But for someone who was grieving and when others came to you and perhaps apologized or felt bad for how they may have responded to certain things, how is that received? Because I would think when you're grieving, you're just appreciative of the effort people are making, and and often on the other end, you may forget about that. But how was it for you? And how was it received when someone would say, "Hey, you know, I made a mistake. I'm sorry," or "I shouldn't have said that."
1: I oh man, that is so appreciated. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me individually, I I I can't speak to to what other how that feels for other people, but um. I, uh, well, my partner was very dedicated to the gym. Um, and he he used to tell me that, you know, you, the muscles are not made in the gym. They're made with proper rest and recovery. Like when you get home and I see that as the way that human relationships work too. You know, we like go into the arena. We like, you know, beat each other up with our words. And then if, but if there is like a proper rest and recovery period where, you know, you take a step back, be like, Ooh maybe that wasn't the right thing to say you recover from it with an apology or like just reaching out and being like hey was that was that awkward for you like did i did that feel not quite right and then you yeah. have a conversation about it and i have recognized that 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 takes courage it takes a lot of courage to be able to you know reflect and then come back with those reflections um, mm-hmm. but i am so much more appreciative when when someone does that rather than brushing it under the rug um, right. that's that's how we learn right that's how we get better at things and that's that's all we can ask for um right. as human beings to 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 learn from our mistakes and then just do better in the future
0: absolutely and i think it brings us closer together when we have those conversations as difficult as they are they do go a long way because it again it shows that human side of us and we're giving each other permission to to be faulty and to make mistakes, but have that level of compassion and understanding for each other, which ultimately brings us closer together. So it's so important to keep that in mind. And I really like that analogy of the rest and restore. So thanks for sharing that. You're welcome. Um, As we come to an end here, I do want to ask if there's anything else you want to share with listeners when it comes to to grief or supporting others or for someone that's themselves grieving what are some things they can do
1: yeah um i don't know if i have any real like tangible stuff but i think it really like giving yourself permission to feel whatever it is that you're feeling um we have this idea that grief is synonymous with sadness and Mm. that couldn't be farther from the truth um grief is energy and that manifests as a whole suite of emotions um so it is okay whatever it is you're feeling if they don't fall within those you know five stages of grief model like it's okay yeah Uh, i think that's really important i think also that giving yourself agency and autonomy to do what does feel good in like deep grief it is so uncomfortable in a grief support role it is so uncomfortable figure out what it is that will kind of soothe that discomfort um in some way um you know Mm -hmm. with practicing self-harm but Mm -hmm. figure out what those things are yeah whether that's like weighted blankets or you know ice cream or you know listening to your headphones or doing yoga and cutting the grass like find something that will kind of soothe your nervous system because this is a long haul it is a long yeah. haul. And if you don't have something that you can hold on to, that kind of brings you back to some sort of equilibrium. I'm not saying equilibrium is like cap- you're capable of getting there or it and should be the goal. Um, but doing something that soothes, soothes you um, is really important. And then uh, I guess the last thing is uh, if this has been helpful at all, uh, go check out the book.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and I think one of the things I would add in which I, gathered from your book is everyone's process is different right so when making sure that you're not judging yourself or others for how they're dealing with their grief right if someone needs to go for a run sure that's their process right and it's important not to 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 not even judge them or yourself if you were doing that right like oh what are people going to say that I'm already out or doing things that you know, does it appear like I'm insensitive or I don't care, but it's your process. And I think we we often get caught up in what others are going to think as well. And it's important to just do what's best for you in those moments and being kind to yourself.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Everybody's experience with grief is unique and it depends on so many factors, how, how some will grieve and how they mm-hmm. will process. And I think that the, um, the timeline of that too is also important to recognize um the loss was like sudden and unexpected it could be months before you actually feel anything so they might normally for a very like long period of time um and then it's you know right. and then they have to figure out how to do that or you know it happens slower and then also like just in terms of like figuring out because grief lasts forever, it's more of just something that you learn to integrate into your life. It's not something that's going to go away or you, that you move on from and figuring out how you're going to integrate that grief into your life, how you, the person that you love is going to integrate that, integrate that grief into mm-hmm. their life. That's a long process. It's not, it's not two weeks. It's not three months. It's not a year. It could be, you know, three years, five years, seven years. Um, in terms of trying to find how how they are going to live alongside yeah that grief and that loss
0: yeah 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 well ali i thank you for coming on here thank you for sharing all that um you know thank you for the work you're doing cuz it's going to help a lot of people on both ends of grief for for listeners that do want to get a hold of you and find the work you're doing, what are some ways they can do that?
1: Yeah, you can check out my website, which is com, and you can find me on social media at The allybird. and the book is called Grief Ally, Helping People You Love Cope with Death, Loss, and Grief, and you can find that anywhere you buy books.
0: Cool. Yeah, I mean, we'll put all that in the show notes. It'll be available Um with the episode for people that are interested, but thank you again for for doing this.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. This has been a really great conversation.
0: Thank you for checking out this episode with Ali. As always, please leave a review or a comment in the comment section. I always love hearing from you and until next week.